What is up, my sweet little baby psychos? My name is Catherine Poulis, and welcome back to another brand new episode of Air Unknown, a mystery podcast. guys hello hello welcome back um this week we have a crazy episode for you guys your weekly dose of darkness is the mysterious disappearance of the solder children and when i tell you that this is the craziest damn story i've ever heard um i'm not lying this starts Christmas Eve in 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sauter and nine of their children were safe at home, enjoying their holiday festivities. Their eldest son being in the way in the army, he was away fighting in World War II, so nine of their ten children were there. And they were playing with toys, laughing, enjoying their normal middle-class lifestyle, and all went to sleep excited for a Christmas celebration the following day. Around one o'clock in the morning, a fire broke out in the Sauter home. George and Jenny and four of their children escaped, but the other five were never seen again. So I'd like to go back and tell you a little bit about the Sauter family history. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sadu in Toulouse, Sardinia in 1895, and that's in Italy, and he immigrated to the United States in 1908 when he was 13. So his older brother, who had accompanied him to Ellis Island, immediately returned to Italy, leaving Giorgio on his own. His name was changed to George Sauter, just like so many of us in the U.S. We've had our family names changed at Ellis Island, myself included, uh, to kind of assimilate as Americans. Um, but George, he would not talk like at all about why he left his home in Italy and just completely refused to discuss his childhood at all. So it became this kind of dark secret of his that was never really uncovered. Rumors have obviously circulated, and some believe that he or his family in Sardinia might have been involved at some point with the mafia. See, George had very strong political views. He often spoke out about his extreme dislike for Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy at the time and had argued with some Italian residents in the community in the past. Which doesn't really ring any alarm bells for me as being odd. Uh, in 2020, I mean, arguing about politics within your community is kind of like your run-of-the-mill regular-ass Tuesday. But maybe it was seen as a little bit more taboo back in the 40s. Sauter eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. And after a few years, he took more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. 
So during this time, he worked for a man named Fiorenzo Janatolo, another member of this Italian immigrant community. And Fiorenzo strongly disagreed with George on his political views on Mussolini, but despite this, they did seem to be pretty good friends and remained close after George had left the company. He then started to work for himself and started his own trucking company. At first, he was hauling fill dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. And this company did very well, like solidifying their place in the middle class. They they were doing good for themselves. They were doing so well that George had a $1,500 mortgage insurance clause payable to this close friend of his, Fiorenzo. So I don't know why he would have this clause payable to a close friend. I guess in case anything happened to your home and your family, that this person would get a payout. I don't know. I don't know why it wouldn't just go to a family member, but I, I guess they were they were still very close regardless of their political differences. Allegedly, Fiorenzo increased this payout to $1,750 without the Sodder's approval or knowledge. So, a little sketchy. He later was actually the recipient of this payout when the house burned down because of this clause, even though George was still alive. Which is insane to me, but whatever, I'm just going to chalk it up to it being the 40s. So, while George was running this new company of his, he met Jenny Cipriani a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers who had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood. They married and settled in the small town of Fayetteville, West Virginia. And regardless of George's outspoken nature and political views, he and Jenny were known to be very well respected in their community. They had 10 children, five boys and five girls that were well-liked kids and said to have had endless potential. So I want to take you through a couple of these key moments in the year leading up to the fire. So April 28th, 1945, Benito Mussolini was executed and buried in an unmarked grave in Lombardy, Italy. And weirdly enough, this was actually two days before Adolf Hitler committed suicide. So 1945, starting out crazy. Uh, In October of 1945, Fiorenzo Janatolo visited the Sodder home as he was trying to trick George into selling him an additional life insurance policy. And when George Sodder declined, Janatolo became so angry that he said, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini end quote. Like, cut and dry, I think this guy maybe had something to do with it. It's a pretty good guess. (laughs) I mean, and then another strange occurrence happened just a few months before the fire. A stranger had appeared at their house asking about work, and he wandered into the backyard, pointed to two of the fuse boxes, and mentioned, this is going to cause a fire someday. And George thought this was especially strange because he had just had the local power company 
come out to examine the house and the wiring, and they deemed the wiring to be completely fine and safe. So he kind of like shrugged off these these two accounts, these weird accounts. Um, but that brings us to the fateful night, uh, Christmas Eve. Marion, the oldest daughter, worked at a little shop in town, and being the very good sister she was, she came home and surprised all of her younger siblings with some toys as an early Christmas gift. And when it was time for the children to go to bed, five of the children, Maurice, who was 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 10, Jenny, 8, and Betty, who's just six years old, ask for special permission to stay up later to play with their brand new toys. And it's Christmas Eve, you know, it's exciting. And Jenny told them, yeah, you can stay up a little while longer. But they had to remember to do their nightly chores before they went to bed. So that consisted of taking care of the farm animals, turning off the lights, closing the curtains, locking the door before going to bed. And they were so excited. They agreed. And Jenny eventually went upstairs to bed, taking Sylvia, the baby, with her. Now around 12.30 a.m., and this would be Christmas Day, she awoke to the phone ringing. So Jenny got out of bed, left the bedroom she shared with George and the baby, and went downstairs to answer it. A woman on the other line asked for someone unfamiliar, and she could hear glasses clanking and laughter in the background like a party was going on. And when Jenny told her she had the wrong number, the woman laughed weirdly and hung up very quickly. And while this seems strange, this later turned out to be true, and the woman really just had dialed the wrong number. Um, But, you know, it's part of the story. (laughs) So Jenny was like a little confused for for a moment, but then... Uh, Her focus quickly shifted to the fact that the house was quiet, but that all the lights were still on, the drapes were open, the front door was unlocked, and Marion, the eldest, was asleep on the couch. And Jenny just presumed that the five children who had stayed up late had forgotten to close up the house, so she did so and then returned to bed. Back in bed, Jenny was drifting back into sleep, when she heard what sounded like an object landing on the roof and then rolling down along the side of the house. And then she smelled smoke. It was approximately 1.30 a.m., Christmas Day, and when she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was completely on fire, and this was around the telephone line and the fuse boxes. So Jenny ran to wake up George, and he in turn woke up his older sons. So both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George, Marion was asleep on the couch, Sylvia's the baby, John and George were the two eldest sons. They all escaped the house. And the family yelled, assuming they would wake the other children who slept in the attic because the flames had been quickly growing covering the stairs in flames, blocking George from being able to go back into the house and go up the stairs to get the children. So he's panicking. They're all outside the house, screaming inside, trying to alert the children in the attic to try and get out of the house. So George 
quickly realizes the only way he's going to get his children out is through the top floor window, the attic window. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. George had raced around to the side of the house where he knew he had a ladder, a ladder that was always laying up against the house. But on this night, of course, the ladder was gone. George then thought if he could move one of his trucks next to the side of the house, he could stand on top and help the five children out of the window. He ran to one truck and then to the other, only to find that both of them would not start, although they had been in perfectly working condition the day before. So he's ransacking his mind for other options. He tried to scoop water from a rain barrel to put the fire out, but it was frozen solid. And while George is literally being superhero dad, dad of the century, there are three separate attempts to try and get help. So his daughter, Marion, sprinted to a neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but couldn't get an operator response. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern, but again, no operator responded. And so finally, this same neighbor drove into town and tracked down the fire chief, F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's, Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm which is like a phone tree at the time. It's like a phone tree system where one firefighter called another who called another and they all would eventually get there. But the fire department, despite the fact that it was two and a half miles away from the house, the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m., seven whole hours after the fire started, which by which point the Sodder's home was just completely reduced to a smoking pile of ash. So far too long, far too long of a response time. It's incredible. Um, And, you know, a lot of people say it was Christmas Eve. Um, They attributed the low response time on being low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other. But Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hindering by his inability to drive the fire truck, which I literally cannot even comprehend why on earth a fire chief does not know how to drive a fire truck. It's absolutely insane to me. I'll never understand it. 1940s, you got to get your shit together. So, The firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do very little but just like look through the ashes that were left at the Sodder's basement. And by 10 a.m., just two hours after they arrived, the police claimed that the fire was started due to faulty wiring. And George heavily disputed this claim because he had just had the house rewired in the last few months. And they said that the Christmas lights were still on for a period of time after the fire started. And they had multiple opinions saying that there is no way wiring could be faulty and start a fire and the Christmas lights still be on. Like, there's no way. And then also, no remains or DNA were ever found in the ash. 
Nevertheless, Morris believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely, which we'll get into a little bit later, but it absolutely was not. So the aftermath of the fire, Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days of it just sitting there, George and his wife could not bear the sight of it anymore. So he brought in five feet of dirt and bulldozed it over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for the lost children, which is so sweet. But at the same time, it's like, don't disturb a damn crime scene. That's like rule number one, don't disturb the crime scene. The local coroner convened an inquest the very next day. And if you don't know what it is, because I actually didn't, an inquest is a judicial inquiry into determining a cause of death, especially in a sudden or unexplained circumstance. So it can be conducted by a judge, a jury, government officials. And in this case, a coroner's jury was convened to assist in the proceeding. And guys, you will never guess who was a member of this jury. Fucking Theorenzo, George's friend, who tried to trick him into buying another life insurance policy and then screaming at him that his damn house was going to burn down. Yeah, that fucking guy. So this jury found that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Exactly what the fire chief said. And then the coroner issued five death certificates on December 30th, just five days after the fire, stating the cause of death, fire or suffocation. It's either one. They're not sure. (laughs) George and Jenny were so grief stricken and they didn't even actually attend the funeral on January 2nd, although their surviving children did. And not long afterwards, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Sodders kept growing more and more suspicious about the clear lack of effort to reach a conclusion and started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, that the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages, when the power should have gone out. And then they found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the house. So like huge red flags going up all over the place. And especially after a telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire as they initially thought, but it was cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up up the pole and reach two feet away from it in order to cut it. And actually, one of the family members' neighbors had actually seen a man stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire. And he was later identified and arrested and admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line thinking it was the power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. But absolutely no record identifying this suspect exists. And like, why would he have wanted to cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing the block and tackle? Like, and that's never been explained. Like, I can understand 
maybe if you're stealing from someone that you might want to cut their phone line so they can't call the police on you. But why? But he didn't want to cut the phone line. He wanted to cut the power line. He accidentally cut the phone line. So I don't know why. That's super weird. Lots of questions. Zero answers so far. Jenny, the mother, also had a lot of trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Now, she found household appliances still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. And she contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read around the same time that killed a family of seven. And in that case, skeletal remains of all of the victims were reported to have been found. So like, why on earth did they not find any remains in this fire? And then Jenny went on to actually conduct some tests of her own. And what she did was burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed. And none ever were. An employee of a local crematorium that she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, which was way longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. I think reading through, uh, doing some of this research, I think the house was burning at around 1200 degrees Fahrenheit and the fire only lasted for like a half hour. So there is no way that no remains could have been found in that instance if they had indeed perished in the fire. So they were also suspicious of the truck's failure to start. Both of the Sodder's trucks were completely unable to start, and George believed they had possibly been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. But again, no report of this thief anywhere. In the spring, the family planted flowers in the soil, bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended to it for the rest of her life. So in the spring, the family planted flowers in the soil, bulldozed over the house, and Jenny tended to it for the rest of her life. But further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children might actually be alive somewhere. And evidence emerged which kind of supported their belief that the fire had not been started by faulty wiring and was instead set deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia, the baby, found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby the house. And if you remember Jenny's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire and a rolling George also recalled this and said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. The family later claimed that, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had definitely started on the roof, but all of this is kind of just circumstantial evidence, and by then, there was absolutely no way to prove any of it. And this is just further proof that If officials had just conducted a thorough and timely investigation, we would have so much more evidence pointing 
towards what actually happened to these poor children. And that's why a lot of people were quick to say that law enforcement was involved in some sort of cover-up. And there actually is some evidence to support these claims. So, completely frustrated with law enforcement, the Sodders decided to hire a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, which is like the best private investigator name. Um, And he was from a small town called uh, Golly Bridge. And he was the one who found out that Theorenza was on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. And he told this to the Sodders. And he also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried at the scene. Now, Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George. George and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with this news, and Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box. And they dug it up and brought what they found inside the box to a local funeral director who, after examining it, told them it was, in reality, fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally. He had supposedly placed it there in hopes that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. And this is all so crazy suspicious. For what reason on earth would a fire chief ever tamper with possible with a possible crime scene like that if indeed he wasn't covering anything up and then why admit to it also like did he feel bad it's so confusing even if the family did find this beef heart on accident it was inside of a dynamite box like how Would that have just naturally ended up there? It all makes no sense, and I have so many questions. So there were actually a couple of possible sightings of the children after the fire that are of note. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of the children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot as well. But one of the most compelling sightings was a woman at a Charleston hotel. She said she saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said she actually saw four of the five kids a week after the fire. She said, quote, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered at about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. 
I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning, unquote. So the police actually said that this person waited way too long to come forward with this information, so they completely disregarded it, of course. Um, the older Sauter sons also were called something peculiar. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. In 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the FBI and received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover himself. And this is a quote. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Hoover's agents said that they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but of course, the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined the offer. Which is like, if there are five children that are possibly kidnapped or missing, you don't have their remains or their bodies or anything, and why wouldn't you do everything in your power to try and find them? Why wouldn't you take any bit of help that is thrown your way? It's so maddening to me. Um, but over the next few years, tips and leads continued to come. And George personally pursued every single call, citing every lead that came up. He was determined to get his kids back. So he saw a newspaper photo of school ch- children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. So he drove to Manhattan in search of the child, and he actually found them, but her parents refused to speak to him. In August 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. And the excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae, belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, who was the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17-year-old maturation. So it's not probable that they belong to any of the Sauter children based on the maturation of these bones. I hope I'm saying that word right, maturation. I've never read it before. (laughs) So the vertebrae also showed no evidence that it had ever been exposed to fire. So that completely rules out that it was that it belongs to any of the Sauter children. The report said that it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house. Noting that the house reportedly burned for only about a half hour or so, 
It said that one would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae of one person. So what they concluded was that these bones were possibly already in the dirt that George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. So these were just random people's bones that were just in the dirt that George had brought over to the house. And these bones were just returned to George, and nobody knows where they are now. The Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oakey L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders their search was hopeless and declared the case closed. But George and Jenny, they're not giving up yet. They erected a billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the recovery of their children. And then they soon increased that amount to $10,000, which in the 40s is a lot of freaking money. So this, of course, prompted more tips to come in. One came from Texas, where a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's, and George traveled the country to investigate each and every lead, always returning home without any answers. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties. On its flip side, a cryptic handwritten note read, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, ill ill boys, A90132 or 35. She and George could not deny the resemblance to their Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, strong nose, and the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. And if you see this photo, guys, I'll put it up on the Instagram. It looks, it 100% could be the older version of this child. 100%. This prompted them to hire their second private detective, and sent him to Kentucky to investigate this lead. They never heard from him again. (laughs) Just gone completely. Like, maybe he ran away with our money, but like, maybe something, maybe he found something that he shouldn't have. We'll never know. He was never heard from again. So some online sleuths tried to decode this cryptic message on the back, and though he doesn't have a brother, Frankie... I couldn't find any connection to ill boys, but people did find that 90135 is actually a postal code in Italy. The Sodders feared that if they published the letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. So instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis and hung an enlarged version over their fireplace. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview. But we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we just want to know what happened to them. George actually died a year later in 1968, ending the very long first-hand investigating that he was doing. 
Jenny erected a fence around her property, becoming a bit of a recluse. And since the fire, she had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do so until her own death in 1989. And that's when the billboard finally came down for good, um, which is super sad. They, I feel like they should have left it up. Um, and her children and grandchildren continue to investigate to this day. Let's get into some of the theories circulating the internet, because um, they're all pretty good theories. Theorenzo, being one, having something to do with it, he, you know, maybe he just wanted more money out of this well-off family and set the fire out of anger. Another theory is George had connections to the Italian mafia and that he owed them money and that they took the children as some sort of collateral, even though George denied those claims heavily and no ransom was ever sent either, so... Um, another theory was that the petty thief set the fire and maybe killed the children because they had seen him outside, but no record of the thief's ID was ever kept. So we have no idea. The best theory that I, that I think, and that most people believe, including Jenny, the mother, is that they were kidnapped while they were outside finishing up their nightly chores before the house was even set on fire. So I think that we can safely say that we know for sure that those children were not in the house at the time of the fire. There is too much evidence to support it. And what happened later is a complete mystery to this day. And unfortunately, most of the people involved are dead. So we'll probably never know what happened to the Sauter children. The youngest and last surviving Sauter child, Sylvia, is now 69 years old and doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. She and her daughter visit crime-sleuthing websites and engage with people still interested in her family's mystery. Her very first memories are of that night in 1945, when she was just two years old. She will never forget the sight of her father bleeding, or the terrible symphony of everyone's screams. And she's no closer now to understanding why. So... That is the mysterious disappearance of the Sauter children. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This was definitely a really exciting case to dive into because there was just so much mystery involved in it. And it was really exciting for me. But it's, of course, so heartbreaking. Um, I'm going to post a couple of photos on the Instagram of the older photo of Lewis, maybe the wanted sign or the billboard. Um, so you guys can go over to Instagram, check it out. It is at error unknown podcast. Give us a follow. If you guys dig the podcast, um, go over to Twitter at error unknown pod, follow us there and please, please, please follow us on Spotify or Google podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to be on Apple Podcasts very soon. There has been some difficulties getting on that for some reason. So I will alert you guys as soon as we are on there. Um, But please rate this podcast, subscribe to us everywhere. It really, really does help, help us get in front of new eyes, helps other people find our podcast. And um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening again. Um, If you guys have any crazy stories you want to tell me um 
please write to me at airunknownpodcast at gmail.com and maybe I will read some of your crazy stories on an episode soon. Um, so next week, I think I got a request for next week and I think I'm going to do it. Um, I think we're going to do a missing 411 case. I'm so freaking excited for that too because there is so much to talk about. It might be like an hour-long episode. Who knows? But I'm really excited. So be sure to tune in next week, Monday. I always drop new new episodes on Mondays. Um, and thank you for listening again. I love you so much. Please stay weird. And I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>